As you know, we've been doing a series, or started a series, in 1 Corinthians, and it's a, such a great book. There's so much in it. And if you know, we've been kind of giving a little review of what's going on. Today, we're calling the message The Crisis in Corinth. And it indeed was a crisis. As we've talked about before, the Apostle Paul spent a year and a half working with this congregation, helping them, being with them. And yet, it seems like the train had came off the tracks, and the place was a mess. And so we're going to be looking at this passage, just giving a little background from back from last week, if you were with us. Back when we were before, the review from last week, as you remember, it talked about these guys were getting, going around saying, well, I'm of Paulos, I'm of Cephas, I'm of Peter. And all these different people are making these things. They're kind of going together with these little groups. They're little clubs. And it's causing huge problems at the church in Corinth. And so what happens is Paul writes and said, listen, you ought to think of us only as servants and managers. I mean, that's not like a high-priced thing. It's not like, you know, you're the highest guy in the, in the com company. It's like you're just a servant, and you're just a manager. And he's trying to get them away from this idea of focusing on one particular person, instead focusing on the gospel. And so what he goes on to talk about, he said, and you guys need to deal with the issue of pride. You think you are so smart, and you've got the greatest guys working, and you think you've got yourself together. And he said, and you don't. And you don't want to recognize the fact that you're full of pride. And so he talked to him about that significantly. And he talked about the fact how they, many of them, were very wealthy. He said, yeah, you're doing great. But he said, we're not. We're hungry. We don't have good clothes. We're like fools for Christ. Maybe people think we're fools. Why are you living like this? You're poor. You're hungry. said, but it's for the gospel. It's worth it. And we'll continue to struggle if we have to. And so what we saw from last week, he decided, you know what? I'm going to send Timothy to Corinth to help deal with the struggle that was going on. And again, he had met Timothy earlier on, and what a guy. He was impressed by him. And he's saying, okay, I can't come right now back to Corinth, but I'm going to send Timothy and we're going to have to get some things straight. And so that's where we pick up our passage this morning, where we're coming into this passage in here in chapter 5. And here Paul is writing, says his heart must be so heavy, having to deal with this issue. And as I uh, send out an email to everybody, I want to encourage some of them just to make sure if you have kids, if you're concerned about it, and, uh, and you know, said you do what you think you're going to be do with it. But anyways, notice what he says. Paul's writing, he said this, you know, it's widely reported that there is sexual immorality. And by the way, if you look at it, that word right there, that word porneia, that's where we get pornography we get from. He said, it's widely reported that there's sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that's not even condoned among the Gentiles because a man's living with his father's wife. I mean, this sounds like the Jerry Springer kind of, kind of deal. It's like, really? And, and like, is this possible? Now, the Romans were not always known to being the most virtuous people in the world, but even the Romans thought, you know, this is weird. I mean, really? And then you say, oh, these are Christians, and this is the way they live? A guy, is, he's had, he said he's got, he's among, he said among the Gentiles, he's living with his father's wife. Does that not seem a little weird to you? Not only weird, but what you know from the gospel that I taught you, you don't have a problem with this? And what he says is, here's the really bad part. Verse 2, he said, you're inflated with pride. 
instead of filled with grief, so that those who committed this act might be removed from among you. He says, it's bad enough that this happened, but the fact that you think that's cool, that's pretty neat, that's really avant-garde that you would do that. And he's like, really? He said, you're inflated with pride. Instead, you're filled with grief for the one who's committed this, that the act might be removed from, might be removed. In other words, that person's got to go. You can't have this in a Christian church where people are together understanding the holiness of God and think it's okay to have a guy who's sleeping with his father's wife. And he said, how is it possible that you don't realize what's wrong here and what needs to be done? And he, Paul says, for though I'm absent in body, I'm not there in Corinth, but I'm present in spirit, and I've already decided about him who's done this thing as that our present. In other words, you're right, I'm not there, but I can tell you what I know about this, and I can tell you what needs to be done. He said, when you were assembled, when you were, were assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, notice this phrase, when you were assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus, the church together, the elders and the church, the people involved, when you're assembled along with my spirit and with the power of our Lord Jesus, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Paul's saying, this is wrong. This is absolutely crazy. He's saying, you're proud, you're arrogant, you think that this is all okay. In fact, you're proud of the fact of your sin. And he said, you know the guy that's doing this? You need to get him out. Now, let me stop for a minute. This goes right against what American culture believes. Hey, man, it's my life. I can do what I want to do. No one's going to tell me what I need to do. This is my personal things. No one needs to know my personal you know, issues, and we don't need to worry about this. By the way, it's happening a lot in churches, even today. What do you mean? I mean, I can do what I want. I'll do what I want to do what I want to do when I do it. Okay, what about the scripture? Well, yeah, well, I'm sure that's important. He's saying, you know what you do? You take that guy out. I don't mean kill him. I mean, <laughs> got to be careful with the phrases used. You need to take him out of the congregation. And this interesting phrase, I'm going to turn him over to Satan. That's a scary kind of thing. It kind of reminds me of the book of Job, you know, like what's going to happen with Job. It's kind of like, all right, take him out. Hand him over to Satan. Let Satan deal with him for a little while. Maybe he'll realize what he's done. Maybe there'll be repentance and restoration. And so he says, turn that one over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. We don't know exactly what that means. Some take it as like he died. Well, if he dies, how's he going to be restored? So but maybe sickness struggle we don't know but he said that his spirit may be saved in the day of the lord now notice if you will this is a quote from gordon fee who's one of the great commentators in first corinthians he said this talking about how people don't feel like it's, it's none of their business he said this you know there's always some who see this action that is taking a person out of the church because of their sin there's always someone who see this action as harsh and unloving but such criticisms comes from those who do not appreciate the biblical view of God's holiness and the deep revulsion to sin that holiness entails. That is a good quote. If you're saying, well, this is no big deal, you've got a problem. God has called us to holiness. We're never going to be as holy as he is until we get to be into heaven. But his point is we are to be living as holy people. And the fact that you had not even care about this is a real problem. And so I like this quote because he said, for them, those who do not appreciate the biblical view of God's holiness, 
and the deep revulsion to sin that holiness entails. And so he goes on to say this, so go it for the destruction of his flesh. He goes, your boasting's not good. And then he uses an interesting illustration. All the Jewish people would pick this up right away, by the way. Passover, Feast of Tabernacles, where they do a lot of stuff with yeast, or getting rid of yeast at least. He said, you know what? You're boasting about the guy who's sleeping with his mother and uh, stepmother. He said, it's not good. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates a whole batch of dough? I don't know if you've ever seen the I Love Lucy story where I think the two guys are out there and they're going to make some bread or something and they're putting all this leaven in it and then all of a sudden they're gone for and they come back and the whole like kitchen, this leaven, you know, the whole thing is growing. You know, it's kind of like he's using that picture. You don't need a lot of leaven for it to filter its way through all of this and grow and get bigger. And he's saying, you know what? You need to get rid of that. Don't you know that a little yeast permeates the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old yeast so you may be a new batch. You are indeed unleavened. And then this beautiful phrase that he adds on it, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. And notice what he said, clean out the old yeast. If this guy is not willing to be restored, if he's not willing to recognize the fact that he's in sin, okay, that's it. You know, he's got to go. But he says, but you who are not doing this, you're indeed, you're, you're unleavened. You're what God would want you to do. And then that interesting phrase, for Christ our Passover has been sacrificed. The Feast of Tabernacles and, of course, the Passover that followed it, that was so important to talk about the fact about the yeast and about this and what was leaven. And he uses that to say, but you know, all of this goes back to the Passover. It's Christ sacrificed for us. And you have gotten so far away from the core of the gospel and that's why I'm going to have to do something. God's going to have to do something with a very, very smart congregation, but very, very in trouble. Now, notice what he says there. Therefore, let us observe the feast, like you would in there. He said, but not with old yeast or with yeast of malice and envy, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. It's interesting he takes that illustration and then says how we are to be living as believers. Now, notice what he does. He takes a little jog here, and he said, okay, I need to talk to you. I got a letter, sent a letter to you, and you did not understand what I was saying, clearly. Let me tell you it again. I wrote you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. And then he says, let me explain what I mean by that. I do not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy or the swindlers, idolaters. And I love this phrase. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. In other words... That's the way the world is. And so when I tell you you can't be, how are you going to lead people to Christ or have an impact on them if you don't talk to them, if you don't have relationships with them? But he's talking, whoa, whoa, make sure you get what I'm saying here. He's saying, I'm telling you, you don't deal with people who claim to be believers, but who have a lifestyle like this. These are the people we need to be dealing with. He says, but now I'm not writing you to, not, I'm telling you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a believer. Notice this phrase, who claims to be a believer, who is sexually immoral or greedy or an idolater, verbally abusive, a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even have lunch with such a person. That's pretty strong. But notice what he's saying here. There's a lot of people who claim to be believers, people who claim that they know Christ, and he's saying, you know what? Not true. I'm not writing to you not to associate with anyone who claims to believe that they claim that they're believers 
and their actions tell the, the, the opposite, saying, you got real problems here. And this church has got a boatload of problems. And if you don't do something, there's going to be real struggle and there's going to be real hurt. So notice what he says here. And it's interesting. He says, for what business is it mine to judge outsiders? In other words, we're talking about the church. It's not our job to be telling those that don't know Christ what they need to do. We, maybe there's times where it, maybe that's appropriate. But he's saying, we're not here to judge the outsiders, the non-believers, but we are going to deal with the people that are the insiders, those who know Christ. He said, don't you judge those that, do you, don't you judge those that are inside? But God judges outside. Says, I'll take care of those. You take care of yourself and your church. And he's saying, and he, then he quotes in the psalm, put away the evil person from among yourself. They need to go. Now, a lot of people in our culture this today look at that and say, oh, that's mean. Those are mean people that do things like that in churches. We're just here about love. And we just have to love each other. Sure, everybody's got problems, and there's no reason for us to deal with this. I mean, we all have struggles, right? That's partly true. We do. But his point is God has called his children to holiness. And God says when it is going this way and you continue to do this and you don't deal with what is wrong, God will have to work in sometimes an amazing way, in a painful way, to get a church that was once so strong that is now struggling. And he said, you know what, this person, maybe he was a deacon in the church. Maybe he's an elder. We don't know. Hopefully he's not the pastor. But whoever it is, he's got to go. Get him out. Again, the issue is holiness in a world of unholiness. And that's why this passage is so important. This passage is so important because it's one of the key passages where Paul talks about the necessity of church discipline. Like most people, no one likes to talk about it, or maybe don't want to talk about it. But there are comes times we have to say, you know what, if you're in a community and in a group, there are times we have to say, this is wrong. This cannot continue. And it is important that we do this. Charles Hodge, the great Presbyterian uh, leader, 19th century said it this way, it is a right inherent in every society and necessary for its existence to judge the qualification of its own members. This right is here clearly recognized as belonging to the church. And he's right. And it's funny because some people say, well, I just don't think it's right to do it. Okay, well, you belong to the golf club, right? Okay, if they see you out there with a golf club and you're making big divots in the ground, do you think they have the right to tell you to stop? Well, yeah, but that's golf. I mean, that's important. Oh, what about the gospel? What about a person who is in deep sin, who refuses to repent? You don't think you should do something? And Paul's saying, you better. It's not a church if you're not willing to take action when it needs to be done for the sake of the congregation and for the sake of the gospel. And so notice this passage. When we talk about the Reformation, one of the things that came out of that was talking about what are the, the major things we need to focus on. The number one, of course, was the word. Martin Luther talked a lot about the fact, the written word, the preached word, the spoken word that people need to hear the word of God. And that was a huge change, a sea change. In the Middle Ages, most people couldn't, unless you were really educated, could not read. They did not have Bibles to read. 
Many of them did not know very little of the scriptures. And suddenly he's saying, we need to get a Bible in the hands of every person to know the scriptures. God has given this to us. And of course, Luther, and they came out with, you know, the Bible, and it was just like unbelievable people were buying them all the places. They're like, really? You can read word, the word of God. And so the marks of the church is the word, the preached word, the word that we hear the, in the, from, the, from the pulpit and in our lives. So the second one is this, is the sacraments. We talk about the Lord's table and baptism, two important things that people still differ over a little bit between now and the, that happened. The third one is that, of course, is discipline. The three marks of a real church, where the word, the gospel, is preached and lived, where the sacraments, the table and baptism is experienced, and the church has discipline. That even if it's the biggest giver you have in the church, whoever that could be, if that person is out, you need to show them the door, not out of hatred, but of saying, we will not, can, if you, we have walked with you, we've talked with you, we've dealt with this, and you refuse to repent, you need to leave. That is very hard for many churches to do. I know for a fact, churches that I've, people I've been friends with, they say, you know, this happened, but we're not going to do anything about it because so-and-so's mother was also married to this person, and it would be a real mess, and we've decided that we're not going to do anything. You say, you know, that'll work for a little while, but after a while, it's going to eat you up. And he's saying there is times, there are times, when you have to say, you need to go. Not out of hatred. Ultimately, out of love for that person, that they'd be restored. This is a tough passage for many people to deal with. Uh, and what I want to talk for about a couple of minutes just deals with this whole issue. Of why do we do church discipline? Just what we talked about. It's the holiness of the community. And what I want to do is I'm going to just read a couple passages that we put into uh, when, we, when we got our church together three years ago. We got some passages from uh, John Piper and from his church. And they had to deal a lot with discipline issues. And we asked, you know, could we have permission to, to use this? And said, as long as you tell, you know, th that it came from us. And I want to just think about it for a minute, because it's been three years, I, I think, that we've had any kind of major teaching on this issue. Because one thing, thank goodness, we haven't had to deal with that directly. And we just pray we don't ever have to deal with that. But we better know what we would do if we had to. It's not a minor issue. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the character of the God that we worship. So why do we do church discipline? John Piper is the one who wrote this thing. And I'm just going to read a couple little excerpts from you because I appreciate what he did and how he said this. Um, stay with me, if you would. He starts off this thing about accountability and church discipline. And what I like about it, he starts with the issue of the holiness of God. Listen to what he said. God has established the church to reflect his character, wisdom, glory in the midst of a fallen world. He demonstrates his love for his church that he sent his son to die for her. His purpose for his church is to present her as a gift to his son. The scripture refers to the church as the bride of Christ. This does not mean that God expects the church to be made of a perfectly pure people. He knows that the best of churches are still companies of sinners who wrestle daily with remaining sin. Therefore, it'd be unbiblical for us to expect church members to live perfectly. 
What we can do, however, is confess our common struggle with sin and our mutual need for God's mercy and grace. He said the Bible does not present church discipline as a negative, legalistic, or harsh. And they note, I like this phrase, true discipline originates from God himself. And it's always presented as a sign of genuine love. And then he quotes from Hebrews 12:6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves. He goes on to say, look at the passage in, in, in Psalm 24, or 94, quote, Blessed is the man whom you discipline, O Lord, and whom you teach out of your law. Revelation 3, those whom I love I reprove and I discipline. True discipline is there out of love, of care for a person. That's why probably 95% of real discipline that goes on is one person to one person who cares for a person, said, buddy, I'm concerned for you. Could we talk? It's that 5%. Or 10%, what it could be, depending on the size of the church, where you have to deal with some of these issues. But notice what he says. God's discipline in the church, like the discipline in a good family, is intended to be primarily positive, instructive, and encouraging. This process, which we call restorative discipline, is likened to scripture as like a shepherd seeking after a lost sheep. I appreciate the way he put this. It's much longer, by the way, but just one thing. But I, Kathy and I, got to live through what this looks like. Kathy and I were married at Feasterville Baptist Church. It was about five miles north of the border of Philadelphia. Uh, I was a youth pastor there for a while and uh, found out a bunch of the guys that were kind of my age, some a little bit older, uh, what we found out, and this is before I should say, before I was really a youth pastor there, but I was a young man. I was maybe 17, 18, and of course I had all the answers in life. Um, and a lot of the guys were struggling. This is like, you know, the peace movement is going, the hippie movement is going on. A lot of bad things were going on among the guys in my youth group, of which I was one. And at least I had some concern that I wanted them to at least stay with the church, continue to come, continue to be involved. And um, I, was, I, I felt like I, you know, my, I had great parents. I was very grateful for them. I was not as involved in some of the bad things that they were, but I still cared for them greatly. And then the word started getting through that one of the leading elders was having sexual affair with one of the women in the church and had been going on for years. When that hit, I'll tell you what it didn't hit, but when it hit our congregation, it was a mess. And every one of those guys, got, got girls, got up out of the place and they were gone. If there's that kind of hypocrisy going on, and I found out later when, I, when all this kind of happened, it's like some of these people had known this for several years and the elders refused to do anything about it. They lost the entire youth group. Many of the people left. People in the neighborhood came up to Kathy and I after the years when this happened and said, we knew that was going on. We saw them making out, in the, you know, out by the car. Who wants to go to a church like that? The impact it had was devastating for the church. 
It happens. It was like a spiritual cancer that hurt that church. But yet the point is, we try to rescue those like the shepherd does, to bring them back into the faith. But you know, it is tough. Today, if you went to Feasterville Baptist Church and you saw the sign, this is the place where Kathy and I were married, you could not read the sign because it's written in Russian. The church got so low, so poor, things were so bad, they promised a song, they gave it to a very evangelical Russian church. And West, I heard they're doing very well, and I'm thankful for that. And I'm glad they just didn't, you know, tear down the church, but it wrecked the church. It wrecked the lives of people. It could have been so different. It could have been that the elders would have had the courage to say, you know what, we have a real cancer among us, and we've got to deal with it. No one was willing to deal with it until it was way too late. We need to pray regularly for our church that we never have to go through this. But if we do, God help us that at least we do it as God tells us to do it. To recognize the holiness of a God who calls us to be holy. To be these men and the women. For it's far more, realize, realize that the gospel is far more important than making somebody upset. And we live a life that's before him. Father, we thank you for this passage. Here was a church that was so smart, had so many things going for him and became a wreck. Father, I've had to see it happen too in my own life. And we pray, Father, that you would protect our church like you have so far in these three and a half years. And we would ask that you continue to be with us. Give our elders courage to do what is right according to the gospel. Help us to be men and women of faith. Help us to be willing to see people that are struggling, that are going the wrong way, that you'd give us the courage and love to reach out to them and to help them in their struggle and their hurt. Lord, help us as we continue, as we come to the table now, prepare our hearts for the bread and the wine. What a privilege. Every Sunday, for almost three and a half years, we've come to this table, the bread and the wine, the presence of our Lord Jesus that's with us at the table. We ask all this now in Jesus' name. Amen.